You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Attention all citizens. In unceasing effort to find a solution to the devastating problem of overpopulation that the earth can no longer sustain a continuously increasing population, childbearing is herewith forbidden. shall be the gravest of crimes, punishable by death. Women now pregnant will report to local hospitals for registration. What enormous progress we've made. They're all designed to be either playful or cranky. Well, we'll take her. He's plastic. Without you, he'll die. Doctor, I want to have a baby. No one is allowed to have a baby for the next 22 years. I want one. That is not reality, Carol. now as a baby. When did it happen? Four months ago. The baby. What will we do with it? We'll love it. Why are you interested in premature births? I won't tell anyone. Just part of a big family, understand? I mean, look after the baby. We just want to share it with you, that's all. That won't be possible, you Give me my baby. Our baby. I want a baby so bad. Why don't you have one you know? One word from me and you and her and the baby have had it! <laughs> you are here by sentence to death, by suffocation. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Christine Makepeace. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Also along for the ride this week is Mr. Keith Gordon. And as always, it's fun to be here. This week we're doing something a little different in the projection booth. While we often talk about a few movies on every episode, usually we talk about one main film and then some supporting works, sequels, and so on. This time we're going to be doing a spotlight of two movies, which I have always felt have really complemented each other. Michael Campus's ZPG and Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men. We're going to be starting the episode talking about ZPG. It's a 1972 film starring Oliver Reed as Russ McNeil and Geraldine Chaplin as his wife Carol. The film is set in the near future where global resources have been strained and the environment has paid the price for a blight of human beings which have polluted the air so much that they live under a shroud of smog. The film was inspired by Paul Ehrlich's 1968 clarion call, The Population Bomb, which warned of overpopulation and called for the need for zero population growth, the ZPG of the title. Christine, I know that ZPG isn't the most popular film in the world, so I'll ask you, what were your initial impressions upon watching it? I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I did not enjoy this film, and I found it very hard to get through. Oh, you're not alone. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay, good. I see. I was, I was like tiptoeing out into those waters. I didn't wanna, didn't wanna make any waves. I appreciate the thought behind it and the sci-fi idea, or maybe not even that sci-fi anymore. But something about the execution made it really hard to hang in there. Yeah, I had very much the same response. I, I thought there were some good ideas. I also thought the last 
25% of the film got a little bit more interesting in terms of human behavior, but I thought a lot of it was dopier than it needed to be, even on what was obviously a tiny budget. I mean, there are plenty of low-budget science fiction films that are wonderful, but I felt like there wasn't a lot of imaginative thinking with the subject that was so interesting, and that was that was sort of frustrating. I mean, it was in a way the correlative opposite of the film that we'll be talking about second, which I think does such a beautiful job of integrating intelligence and humanity and emotion. And this one kind of felt just kind of dopey and 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 and, and a little not great. And and I don't think that's just about being dated or anything. There are plenty of films from that era, which, which science fiction films that had a lot more depth and complexity. Dopey is such a good word. I've seen this film a few times now, and it was only the last two viewings of it where I actually got to see a lot more that was going on because the first few times I watched this, it was a VHS version of it. And like I said, these people live in a world filled with smog, and they use that smog kind of smartly to cover up their inefficiencies, especially with the budget and everything. And this this film was shot in Denmark, I believe, and I don't imagine, if you watch the end credits, it's almost all Danish names, right? I noticed that, yeah. Yeah, and I think that there weren't very many people on set that spoke English as their first language. So I imagine almost everybody who's wearing one of those, they wear like almost scuba masks in this. And I imagine they use that as a device to just redub all the voices because we've got our four main leads who speak English. And then I imagine just about everybody else, maybe a, a actor here or there were speaking English. And then I imagine the rest of them were speaking. Is it Danish Dutch house? screw that up i think it's danish okay but uh, you know it's funny because to my ear uh it sounded like the whole film or or, or if not almost the whole film was post-dubbed i mean i don't know if that was a uh, budget situation or whatever but even with the the main english-speaking actors a lot of that dialogue seemed like it was post-synchronized and and, and recorded later there and there was also some both in terms of there being some wobbly sync and also just the sound quality never oh. quite sounded live I completely agree with that. That made it really hard for me. I felt like I was, I kept turning, I know this is technical stuff, but kept turning the volume up and then still couldn't hear. And then all of a sudden someone would yell and I'd be, oh, okay, turn that back down. It made it hard to kind of get into it because there are a lot of like quieter moments where like just two characters are intimately talking about like babies. And then you're like, I wish I could really hear what they were saying. I think there's a lot of good ideas here, but I don't think that the execution is quite what it should be. Like the opening of the film, we have this whole idea of there's too many people and here comes this edict coming down from the government and it's delivered via this really cheap looking satellite that flies around and they call it Big Mouth, at least in the the credits and in the novelization, the, the captions. And Big Mouth and the president deliver this message that for 30 years, nobody is allowed to have a baby. Women who are pregnant right now, they can continue to term and have their children, but nobody else is allowed to have a baby. And that's the gist of the film. I think that could have been handled in a scroll rather than the opening scene, because it just felt really clunky, because after that, we jumped to eight years later. 
and just start us off at eight years later. Give us that opening thing. Give us a voiceover. Give us a scroll. Give us something like that. We don't need, you know, we've had scrolls and classic, classic movies. We've had it in Blade Runner. We've had it in Judge Dredd. There's a precedent here. Anything would have been better than the very, like the thing that looks like a kid's model that you build, you know, uh, hanging on a couple of wires. And, 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 and part of the problem is that it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I, I always am bothered in movies, whatever kind of movie, whatever genre, when I feel like there's a lot of exposition up front that's clunky and that things are being done that only are being done so you can have the plot. I mean, it just seems like the way they decided to control the world's population is very random and was a way to kind of back engineer how do we get to a story about this couple having a baby and then being, you know, having to hide it. And uh, it just seems like if the governments of the world were going to come up with something, they would have come up with something a little less silly than, well, for 30 years, no kids and then kids again. Um, and we'll kill everybody who has kids in the meantime. It just it just felt like one of those, OK, I'll accept that's the plot because you're telling me that. But it doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. Oh, and I didn't really, I had a hard time accepting that that was the plot because they told me that. I kept saying, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, what about this? Well, they didn't really think this through. And I feel like if the beginning of the film wasn't so exposition heavy, like they didn't just dump all this information on me, maybe I wouldn't be so quick to be looking for, for flaws in this thing that they laid out. I would have just been like, oh, this is the truth of the situation, and now these two people are struggling with it, or everybody's struggling with it, really. I, I was really quick to to say, well, that doesn't make sense. I, why wouldn't they just do that? Well, how do they know she's not – how does she get a ration? Like, I, and I shouldn't be thinking about stuff like that. It took me out again, that and the sound. And you know what? A lot of things took me out of this movie. <laughs> I'm at a distinctly unfair disadvantage because I was on vacation a couple weeks ago and I brought with me The Edict, which was the novelization of the screenplay. And it was actually written by Max Ehrlich, who, as far as I can tell, is no relation to Paul Ehrlich, the guy who wrote The Population Bomb. But it's just this weird cosmic coincidence that they both have the last name. So Max Ehrlich and Frank D. Folletta wrote the screenplay together. We talked about him a long time ago when we talked about The Entity. He was the guy who wrote this, the novel that The Entity was based on. And he and Ehrlich worked together on a few things. And Ehrlich took the idea and basically wrote a book about it called The Edict. And that was much more detailed and much more satisfying than the movie because there are things that we kind of get hints about in the film that we don't that we we get a lot more information in the book like the whole idea of oliver reed and the other guy working at this museum and we don't really like watching the movie again last night it's like i never really get the impression that these guys work here at this museum it is a status position that they work there because this museum of the 20th century, specifically 1971, it's one of the few places in the city that actually has room to it. Like there's one shot where we have all of these people waiting and one woman says that she's been waiting for four years to come to this museum. But we don't necessarily get that as an idea that this is one of the few places in the whole place that has room. And otherwise you are just packed in like sardines every place else in this place. Well, the only reason I thought maybe it was what you were saying in a status job was because our main character's apartment is pretty sizable and pretty nice. And I figured, well, in a world that seems so poverty stricken and jammed together, the fact that they're, that the, our four main characters 
are living in a comparatively, you know, upper middle class sort of setting made me think, oh, I guess those must be like cushy, great jobs that they have. But but I wasn't sure that was just my presumption. Yeah, I had to assume that, too. And I assumed that because they got to jump the line to walk into the museum thing. Uh, I don't know. Little, little tells, I guess. But it would be cool if they made that more clear, because then maybe I would be able to forgive other questions, like, why was this woman just allowed to disappear for nine months? And, like, how was she getting food? And did no one want to know where she was? If people are tracking women and what they're doing with their reproductive system so much, you would think that people would wonder where she was. But maybe if they were in this higher class of people, they, that wouldn't be the case. But I, I don't know. They had one throwaway line in there where she says, I'm going to have to go away for a while or something like that. And in the book, you get this whole thing where they stage a fight in front of George and Edna. The, really, so much of the book is the relationship of these two couples. And those moments w- that we get, which seem like real human interactions between the two couples, where they are talking about swinging. I'm talking about wife swapping. You know, they, they are like, okay, you, you're going off with Edna tonight, and I'm doing this, and no, I'm not really feeling well, and all this kind of stuff. Those are played for real in the book, but in the movie, every single time they have one of those those scenes, the camera turns around and we see an audience. So we're not sure if this is being done for show or if this is being done for real. So it's an interesting thing that they're doing there, but at the same time, it's like, no, this is... There's this whole thing of, and they mention kind of offhandedly, you know, state-sanctioned pornography. They're encouraging people to have sex and enjoy themselves, but not have children. And one of the reasons, one of the ways that they're doing that is basically they've eliminated the moral taboos of of uh, monogamy. So it's like, okay, yeah, big. It, we're we're having a massive swing party now that kids aren't part of the equation i guess because no kids are going to walk in and and see you guys having a key party so now it's just swing like crazy which is not necessarily what we're seeing in the film no in the film i took it just the other way around i took it that they were performing this kind of 70s swinging lifestyle as part of this museum of the 70s and i actually thought it was very funny i mean it actually cracked me up and i thought oh this is going to be a satire and then of course the film didn't turn into a satire um but i but because they always had an audience there when they're having these conversations about who's with who tonight i thought oh how funny they're making fun of this other era where people were you know people were were libertine by their standards um especially because there's a lot of other scenes in the film where they make fun of or you know, intensely put down people from earlier eras who indulge their sensual desire for food or anything else. So, so the film actually makes it seem as if it's a very puritanical era that they're living in. So, yeah, I didn't get the idea that this swinging lifestyle was actually something that was real. And maybe I missed it because I was just spacing out trying to figure, just trying to get hang with the movie. But to me, I thought the whole idea was this was part of their presentation of this awful, wasteful lifestyle when you were pumping gas in cars and when people would have sex with their with their neighbors and when they'd eat whatever they felt like. And um, so I, I kind of miss what you're saying entirely. And it's interesting if that was part of the, the novelization because I kind of got it reversed watching the film. That's how they kind of explain Edna being over at their house when she discovers that Carol's had a child is that she's basically moved in now with Russ because she kind of digs Russ and wants to spend as much time in his bed as she can. She's really, Edna is a 
major character in the book and it's this whole idea of her being and we kind of again it's like we get these shades of this stuff but we don't necessarily go all the way we get the idea that she's kind of off and she can't handle as i completely can understand she can't handle the surrogate children that they're passing out to people and she wants to have a real child as well and she's a little off because of that and yeah this this whole idea we almost start the film in this baby factory for lack of a better term this this doll factory where they have these incredibly creepy dolls that people are now adopting and taking care of as if they were real children and my god does that those dolls are nightmare fuel but see, for me, I, the dolls really bugged me because I felt like the lack of imagination about where our AI would have gotten to by the time the story was taking place. I mean, when you think that, you know, 2001 was made three years before this film and you had the character of Hal who was a much more complicated character. And the, the idea that these baby dolls would basically do not much more than a baby doll could have done in 1971 um, really bothered me. You know, it seems like if they were going to go through this huge sort of thing to, to get people to not freak out over not being a hell of kids, they could have made that element more interesting than basically taking, you know, plastic baby dolls and have them kind of respond to a few obvious clues of what to do. But I felt like that was one of the places where that failure of imagination as opposed to really well done sci-fi was really bothered me. I, I agree. They were really creepy, Mike. They were creepy and awful and had, <laughs> dead dead eyes and and there were a few things i guess to speak to keith's comment about lack of imagination there were times in this movie where you you really felt like no one thought it through like if this is supposed to take place in the future why does it feel like it's such a 70s movie and i get that we can't no one can see into the future and there's limitations in place to what we can ever imagine but it would just be cool if something like really wacky and from like left field had happened with especially with these baby dolls um if they were i know they probably couldn't do holograms or something to be more interesting than just these disturbing lifeless dolls that twitched a little bit you mean you didn't want to take one of those home with you oh no and and then that whole hypnotism thing where they were like just say loudly over and over again that the doll needs you (laughs) no thanks i'm all set thank you yeah, the the most futuristic we get is those wall size screens and the idea of shopping from home, right? Crazy idea, right? <laughs> I did enjoy, I did enjoy that, yeah. And I like how the salesman's like hitting on her. You know, again, that's kind of like the free love thing, but then you know, uh, Russ kind of freaks out. He's just like my wife, you know. And again, in the book, there's like this big thing about that that Christmas tree that he gets her. There's this whole like heist where he goes out and he actually digs up a tree from the museum and brings it in, and it's a real tree and it's such a treat. And that's kind of like the moment that he breaks down and then figures that okay, if I can do this, then my wife can have a baby, and so he goes along with the idea but he's very very reluctant to allow her to to have this baby because it's so dangerous and we get to see those those crazy public executions of them dropping a a a big 
clear thing. I don't understand this thing. They they drop like a clear glass or plasticine container over people so that they'll suffocate. But then guys come along immediately and they paint them. And I'm like, well, why, why don't you just make them, them red? <laughs> Why weren't they just? Why were they see through to begin with? Why weren't they just painted? Lots of and questions. Why are they painting them? Questions. Again, another one of those things is like, okay, they're painting that so that our heroes can do their fantastic twist thing at the end. Because there's absolutely no other reason. If you're trying to put people on public display, if you're executing people and wanting everybody to see their deaths, then that then painting over the clear stuff is like sort of only seems to exist. So a really implausible plot turn can happen, and it feels like just a just really forced in their setup so that you can sort of justify something else. I love how futuristic this movie is, too, in that everyone wears the same blue turtlenecks with big medallions. <laughs> Were there fetuses on those medallions? God, you know, talking about seeing it clearly or not, I didn't even notice what the design was on those. I thought it was like a fetus, but I don't know. I could be wrong. I hope you're right, because that would actually be interesting. I thought it was kind of cool. That seems more interesting than the film tended to be, though. That's the kind of thing that I wish the film had had. Maybe I'm making it up. So all credit to me for that one, if that's not what they were. When we do the remake, we'll do the fetus on 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 the medallion. I understand we're, we're complaining about the dolls and we're complaining about, you know, the lack of futurism and everything. And I know that this movie didn't have a huge budget, but still it's like work with what you have. I mean, that satellite, that satellite makes me think that Logan's run looked like a lush sci-fi production. You know, those horrible miniatures of the city in Logan's run, but at least they had the smarts to like, you know, carousel works, you know, the, the, the stupid robot and everything, that thing works, but the elements that are in here, it's just like, yeah, I, and there are things that I like. I like the museum aspect. I like those, those wretched, um, <laughs> the, the stuffed animals that they have in their museum, which <laughs> yep. just looks so terrifying. But it's funny, you look at a film from, I think maybe it was about the same year, I don't remember, um, THX 1138, George Lucas's first film, where he had no budget at all. He probably had less of a budget than this film. And and yet what a, you know, a really terrific, interesting future world he created, you know, just by, again, just having a cinematic imagination. Well, and even the idea of just having massive amounts of people, you know, just having so many people in one spot. And we're going to get that idea again, I think, the next year with um, Soylent Green. And you can really tell that things are overcrowded in that. And having the people who sleep in hallways and just seeing those crowd scenes and stuff. And in here, they're kind of, it looks like they probably have about 20, 30 extras. And they're dealing with them most of the time. And they don't necessarily know how to position things to make it look like these are massive crowds of people because that's our problem is overpopulation taxing everything we're getting everything it's all being told and not shown so we get the old man saying well they cured cancer and they cured heart disease and they cured this and now we have all these old people around it's like well show me all of the old people that's what i want to see i want to see massive amounts of old people give me that problem as a visual and that's very hard to do on a low budget. I mean, to be fair, that is, you know, large crowds are very hard. when You don't have a lot of money. But again, I think there are things that you can do to 
ameliorate that. And they don't feel like they did any of them except create that very silly looking clouds of fog, which is hopefully hiding the fact so you can't see much of anything. But, you know, I mean, you can create small, you know, smaller spaces, cheat all your, your sets so you're shooting in a much smaller space than you should be so that your, your 20 extras that you can afford look more jammed in or whatever. But, again, it just doesn't feel like a film where there's a lot of thought put into any of that stuff. I really liked the smog too, not in the execution so much as the idea. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if every time like she turned around, like the scene where she's running with the baby and she kept banging into people, but it really just seemed like she was just alone out there. And it gave more of a feeling of this emptiness. Whereas the, I feel like the movie should have been doing the opposite and making us feel, feel really claustrophobic all the time. I got that claustrophobia in the movie theater. That yes. She goes into. Yep. I liked that scene too. Yeah, that scene was pretty interesting. Were there, like, stomachs growling on the soundtrack? Was I hearing that correctly? Yeah, I assumed that was supposed to be a joke. I mean, that's, see, again, the movie had these moments of sort of satirical humor, and I felt like if it only had embraced that, if it had, if it had gone in the Dr. Strangelove direction instead of the fail-safe direction, it might have been a much more successful film. Because there were moments like that where it seemed to be making fun of human behavior, and I think the idea was that all the people in the while the the movie is is this kind of very doctrinaire moralist thing about how awful it is that people back in our era in the 1970s you know ate whatever they felt like eating and indulged themselves and all these people are sitting in the theater being lectured at about how terrible that was they're all sitting there and their stomachs are all growling because they're watching people eating these delicious comparatively delicious looking food and I actually thought that was funny and I thought you know where the film played with things with a sense of humor it let me forgive its flaws a lot more when it got really pompous and self-serious it was much harder to like you know, you, I couldn't take it seriously in terms of the way it was done, but when it didn't take itself so seriously, that wasn't as big a problem. And I like that they're watching literal food porn. These people were really turned on watching people eating and just the the slurping and the noises and just those the close ups of the mouths as they're stuffing themselves with food and just everyone in the audience is wrapped with attention. Yeah, I thought I thought it was really effectively done because if you listen to the message that they're trying to get across is like how gross everybody was and how everyone was addicted to these terrible things and the audience seemed really into it. I was like, oh, this is fun. I wish, I wish it was more like this. One of the questions that I have for you guys is Oliver Reed in this movie. He feels I, I don't want to say miscast, but it feels like he was in the wrong role. Like Oliver Reed is a great heavy and i've seen him play romantic parts i've seen him play a whole bunch of parts but as our main male character i actually liked the other guy i liked don gordon more than i liked oliver reed and i thought don gordon had more of the energy that was needed because oliver reed just felt like he was sleepwalking through this role was that what you guys were thinking too or what was your impression of him i don't know if i thought miscast while I was watching it, but I definitely thought underutilized. Um, it just, sometimes I would forget he was there and then I would get like re-excited that he was in this movie and then he would proceed to not do much. So I just wished it had been more, I guess, of a quote-unquote meaty role for him. Um, and that that was a bit disappointing. I mean, I, I also felt like it, he, was, he was the one who was really not helped by what seemed to have been the post-production dubbing. Um, I felt like his voice was very flat, and that may have been a result. I mean, I don't know that it was that. It just sounded like bad looping to me. So I felt like that's also a performance where he probably was standing in a booth somewhere going, I'm really annoyed that I'm having to be here doing this. 
on this low budget film that I wasn't paid much on. I mean, I, just, I had a whole story in my head, but I felt like his readings were flat, but I also felt like his readings weren't the readings he was necessarily doing at the time when they shot the movie. And, and you know, and some of it is that maybe he was miscast, I, I, but I, I really like him as an actor a lot of the time. And I've often felt him somebody that had sort of an interesting combination of humanity and, and edginess and all that. And I just don't think any of that was there. So I don't know what he was doing or what he was being directed to do. But the character wasn't written with a lot of complexity either. I mean, you know, it wasn't like either he or Geraldine Chaplin had much about them that we got to know other than the the factual plot points about them, about what they were trying to do or what they were thinking. But there wasn't a lot of character there. And and, and I just don't know if maybe he just sort of ch- – I mean, you know, when I think of Oliver Reed, he worked with so many interesting directors on really interesting scripts. And yeah, this didn't have that going on. And I wonder if that's maybe part of what, what you're seeing is, is just the lack of something to latch on to. Yeah, for me, he should have had more to do – just yeah more more tension i mean pretty much the only tension that we have in this movie is will they get found out and will they die and then eventually we get the idea of this other couple wants to take the baby and share but that seems to move a little too quickly almost i mean we get that montage of stuff going on and oliver reed isn't even in that montage at all it's like what happened was he just not available that day or is he just not part of this part of the story but it's all the other couple and their interaction with the baby and then seeing geraldine chaplin and seeing her upset at this and that's fair if geraldine chaplin is our main character that's absolutely fair but it feels like he should have that the oliver root character should have had a little bit more in this and that we kind of get some idea of when she's hiding in this bomb shelter under the the house that Edna's coming over and he has to kind of put up and put on an act for her. And Geraldine Chaplin is, is or Carol is getting jealous of that, but it just passes so quickly that it just never feels like that, that comes to anything. I, I agree. And I think it's too bad because to me, that was maybe the most interesting idea was this other couple who like everybody in the society can have kids and the fact that rather than turning in their friends, you know, that they basically try to blackmail them into letting them share their child. And and to me, that was a complicated and interesting and that's me. OK, I haven't I felt a lot during a lot of the movie. Because, oh, my God, I've seen this so many times, this situation, this idea. And that idea was something I hadn't seen before. I mean, basically blackmailing somebody into like, well, either let us share your baby or we'll have you killed and probably the baby, too. And I felt like I, I agree it happened so fast and it, it escalated to such a ridiculous degree so fast that it missed the chance to be a really interesting uh, kind of character arc for everybody and story arc for everybody of like this, this slowly growing sort of obsession that these other two people have and how that affects them and how it affects our main two characters. And to me, that was, that was potentially the most meaty thing in the story or, or most original thing. And, and I was kind of sorry that it was compressed into 10 or 15 minutes of screen time instead of getting more of the, of, of the film. Mm-hmm. You could have done some really interesting stuff with the King Solomon type thing of, well, if I can't have this baby, then no one will attitude that all of a sudden Edna has, which is interesting. But like I would have that would have been more interesting if we actually kind of got to sit and stew in it a little bit longer, because it seems kind of like a brash decision the way it's presented like they're obsessed with this baby and then they're willing to let the baby die. I mean, they're super upset about it once that cool dome comes down, but it was just like, oh, I wish I could have like been in this obsession longer. Yeah, it would have been a good thing to focus on. 
to flesh the movie out. It's funny. In my head, when I thought about this movie for the longest time, all I could remember was that part of it was that we found out about the baby. Now we're going to take this thing over and, and this is going to be the dynamic of the film. I had in my head that this was 60 minutes of a 90 minute film. We did the setup and then we went into that. And then when I rewatch it, it's just like, oh yeah, that that's pretty quick. That's like almost just the third act. And we don't necessarily, it, that should have been really the second act of the film. And it's not even the whole third act because the whole last part of the third act is after that situation sort of is, has not resolved itself, but as our main characters have then gone on to face you know, potential execution. It's pretty fast. And I agree. Look, I would have loved that to have been, yeah, the second and the third act. I mean, I mean, there's an interesting film to be made out of that story. And it kind of felt wedged in as opposed to central. Yeah, I like what you said about THX 1138. And talking about crowd scenes, there's that awesome scene when they um, are on the run at the end of 1138. And they go into a hallway. And the hallway is just almost dangerous because there are so many people coming through it and it's just this crush of bodies and people getting lost in this sea of bodies it kind of reminds me of like the first time i ever went to new york city and was at grand central station at five o'clock in the afternoon and it's just like i coming from the midwest i never seen that many people in one place at one time or going to uh, China in the fall and being at U Garden on a Saturday and just all of the people, just, you know, just this crush of people. It's possible, you know, like that sea of humanity is something that's scary. And that could have been a, a great conceit for this film was just how scary it is to have so many people. But even when you get to like the restaurant scene and stuff that they're not all crushed together and that they actually have a little bit more room to like spread out with a, a menu. I don't know. It just, it felt like they could have even done that better. And even like more unappetizing shots of the food that they're eating. Cause they're basically eating, they're eating basically what we're going to see in, in soil green. They're not eating people necessarily, but they're, they're eating just like yellow liquid and green liquid and blue liquid. And it's just nutrients. That's all they have. It's like, they talk about like, should we have the stroganoff? And there's a joke there, but it's not necessarily as funny as it should be. It should they should just have somebody slam down, you know, food in front of them, or they should just take a squirt of that liquid, and that's all you get. Rather than there, there's that disconnect between them joking and what we actually see. Well, and the thing is, it's but I just I didn't even take it as a joke because they have all these big menus, and I mean, clearly the to me the idea was that they are supposed to be ordering things, and that the problem is that they. In the end, it does all just taste alike. But the fact is that part of the problem is that our characters half act like it really is that they're ordering different things that taste different. And finally, Geraldine Chaplin later on says, well, they're getting better. You know, the steak actually tastes a little bit like steak. And But again, the rules of the game seem to be being made up all over this movie in general as they went along and then changed as they went along. And I mean, I agree with you that, that, that the feeding – I mean we find out very late in the game that there's only one place they can go to eat. Like so everybody has to go to this place to eat. They don't – nobody sort of seems to behave that way. So it's like, oh, that's an interesting idea, but you never really said that. And in terms of what you're talking in terms of the crushes of things, I, I, yeah, I don't know why, again, they didn't pick tighter locations. I mean I think part of what part of what worked in 1138 was you know picking spaces where with, with his moderate number of people, he could really jam it up. But by shooting in a big restaurant with only so many people, 
it's never going to look that crowded. And I just don't know why in a film that's all about people being jammed together, all the spaces weren't picked to do that. It's not, not, it's not a hard thing to do to find small spaces to shoot in. It's usually the other way around is the problem is finding places big enough. While I was reading this book, I kept thinking about the one-child policy in China and what a radical social experiment that was. And me growing up, I was about eight years old when China instituted the one-child policy, which is kind of a misnomer. It's actually the one-birth policy. So eight years old, living in the Midwest, you start to hear all these crazy things, right? So it's like, oh, yeah, well, if a woman has two child children if they if she has twins they take one away and they kill it you know or oh yeah if this happens they take the child away and they kill it so it's just like this wonderful propaganda that we get being u.s citizens and being in small towns and things so you know oh yeah yeah this is how this works over there so going over to china and seeing a uh, basically a generation of only children was very interesting yeah i just kept thinking of the whole idea of what would it be like here in America? What? Uh, how did this thing take place? That we go from, you know, in the movie, it's no children for 30 years. And in China, it was one child for, I think it was about 26 years. So I'm amazed that they actually pulled it off and that they could do that. And then also just the social implications of what would happen. Because, I mean, it's even thinking of ZPG, thinking of the film. So after 30 years, I mean, just the, the kids that were born right before the edict went into place would be able to have children. But then all of that institutional knowledge of childbirthing and uh, just taking care of kids, because we get that older generation and I like that scene with the older generation where they have the older friends in ZPG and the way that the old man is basically looks like death. And when he finally hears the baby cry or sees the baby, his whole face lights up. And that's one of the, the few great moments of ZPG for me is just the way that he kind of springs back into action. And now he's got work to do and he has a baby around. Yeah, that policy just overall seemed a little irresponsible. Like, uh, it's uh, not ideal. Nobody wants to be told that they can't have kids. But yeah, like what what you said, so for 30 years, there's no kids at all. It's like just turning a faucet completely off. There's implications to that. Like that, like the loss of knowledge, the loss of skill set. Like, are we going to keep training teachers to be ready for when like, or creating new software if that's how they're learning like it just seems so strange like that was the best like the best thing they could come up with no kids 30 years boom yeah i know everything about it seems silly because you're gonna have this huge huge you know hole in your workforce and your i mean everything about it felt like i just didn't think that i mean you know at least china's one child policy may have been a horrendous policy but it actually you could follow how that might work but a sudden no child policy combined with we'll kill everybody who has a child, um, just seems, but but we won't enforce sterilization for some reason, which they say in the opening without ever explaining. It's like, there's all these things we could do, but we're going to do this the most difficult way that's going to encourage people to cheat, but it's going to be draconian. And it just, that's where I started with the film. It's such a hard place was going, this doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, you know, it's one thing to not make sense emotionally and go, Oh, that's awful. And that's terrible. And, you know, that kind of 1984 thing of you can't have love or you can't have this. Or, but but this just felt like 
this is what you guys came up with. It just felt like, did you like, did you like to say whoever talks first gets to decline to describe the future? No babies. Oh, he said it. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going with it 30 years. I was going to go for mass suicide and executions, but okay. (laughs) Well, and it is funny that all the things that they say in that opening screed that goes on and on and on about like, we're not going to do new euthanasia. We're not going to do, and all these things that would be societally much easier to imagine somehow instituting, not any morally less awful, but, but, but actually you could, you know, societies have done them or could do them as opposed to this, no babies for 30 years and we kill you if you have them. Um, which is part of the problem is that is that I mean a film like Soylent Green actually deals with those things a little bit more intelligently about the different ways they're trying to you know deal with the population of the world and that that film is from this exactly the same era and has its cheesy moments but it, it's far smarter about uh, believable societal changes I think. Luckily, doing the research on this film made me go back and read the book that Soylent Green is based on, and one of the weirdest things is that. The cannibalism, the whole Soylent Green is made of people. Spoilers, by the way. When you edit this, you should put that before that statement. Spoilers, by the way. The whole Soylent Green is made of people. Well, like kids out there have not seen that movie. And that's like the only line that a lot of people know from it. That's true. But that is not in the book at all. Soylent Green is just soybeans and lentils. That's it. We never get to the food. It is the murder mystery of who killed this person. It never leads us into that area. So it's it's a it's an interesting book and it's an interesting film and, and I like how they're very distinct in the way that they approach things. Well, and it's really it's that speaks really well of the screenwriters, you know, in terms of what they did with the material because the thing that everybody remembers about Soylent Green is not the murder mystery. It's not the you know the the comings and goings of who killed what, and you know it, it's it's definitely that 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 element and the more societal elements, the you know, Edward G. Robinson and the euthanasia thing, and you know. So in, in in translating the film, I think they were pretty smart about what they put their emphasis on. The Edward G. Robinson character, he just dies in bed one day. That's it. Oh yeah. So yeah, right. I mean, that's one of the most powerful moments of that film, and is him in that euthanasia chamber and the music and Charlton Heston so upset, but. Yeah, I mean, Charlton Heston was upset in a lot of films. I mean, whether people were blowing up the earth and creating race of eight people or they were eating each other. He was very, very upset. Very that angry. really is what, what he's known for. You maniacs! Damn you! God damn you all to hell! All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Mei Fong, the author of One Child, the story of China's most radical experiment. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, 
sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. How did you decide to become a journalist? Or did journalism decide to make it your calling? Well, um, I grew up in Malaysia, and um, I was kind of the fifth daughter um, in a Chinese family. So that's kind of 
Pride and Prejudice style, you know, uh, a bit of a catastrophe to have so many daughters in a Chinese family. Um, my father really wanted sons. So as a result of being a fifth kid, I think I was kind of neglected quite a bit. And so I discovered books. And, and that was my window to the world. And, you know, after reading a lot, then I wanted to write, you know, and aspire to write. And so, and that, and plus, I was desperate to get out of Kuala Lumpur, <laughs> and so that that seemed to me the way to do it. That if I could write and I could write reasonably well, then I could, um, you know, travel and get out and see the world. And that's what I really wanted to do. We are around the same age, and I remember hearing about the one-child policy when I was a kid. But of course, China was relatively closed off at that time. Obviously, you were much closer to it physically as well as you know, connected via your parents and yourself. When I was a kid hearing about the one child policy, it was almost all rumor and hearsay. When you were a kid and this gets introduced, what is your impression of it when you first hear about it? Well, my connection, my first connection to the one-child policy was very personal one. My family is Chinese, so we are, you know, Chinese immigrants. My grandparents came from Guangzhou to Malaya, as it was known at the time. You know, obviously, we still have plenty of relatives. We had the old ancestral village back in China. Because China is a very sun-loving culture, uh, my father, my grandfather had three wives. He had 18 sons, and my my father was the 16th. So when it came to me, and I was the fifth daughter, uh, we were very aware at family gatherings, like Chinese New Year, where the whole clan would gather together, that uh, we were sort of viewed as a catastrophe. You know, my the, the aunts would look at my mother in pitying ways. My mother would be very sad at these occasions. And then um, all these aunties would just sort of waggle their fingers and point at us and say, you know, you're lucky not to be born in the old country, because if you were, you would be dead. You would be put away in the village well. You would be given away or you'd be strangled at birth or all it's a horror stories, and that was my first introduction to the one-child policy. That my first awareness that back in the old country, that having more than one child was uh, a curse, and having so many daughters was an even worse a curse. And so it, it sort of was a bit of a bogeyman for me for a while growing up. Much, much later, many, many years later, after I bounced around the world a bit. And I was working in China for the Wall Street Journal and reporting. And then, of course, this was one of the things that sort of felt interesting, but it also felt like something that had receded. about When I was working in China, it was in the early 2000s. And so this was that China was an upward swing, boom, 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 Starbucks opening everywhere in the city corners. People were switching from bicycles to BMWs at a very rapid speed. The one-child policy seemed like something that was off the recent past, but was no longer very important. People in the city sort of felt like we don't want more children anyway. So it seemed like much more voluntary. But the thing is about China is the city and the countryside are very different places and very different circumstances. So when I started going out into the countryside, when I started reporting and looking at it on a deeper basis, then I started seeing the underpinnings of the one-child policy. For example, I was a business reporter. I'm not um, you know, so for Wall Street Journal, we're very focused on business issues, not so much human rights. And um, I used to cover uh, the factory beat, as we called it. So down south, China manufactures, China is known as the factory of the world. So I would regularly visit these um, factory centers. There's a place called Dongguan, which basically manufactures all your cell phones, um, your um car parts, anything in the world that could be made in a factory, most likely was at one point or other made in Dongguan. 
And even way back when in 2003, I started hearing from all these factory managers that they were having difficulty hiring people, that they were running out of workers. And it seemed to me so absurd because we were still in that whole China is the most populous nation on this earth, people, massive amounts of people. So um, when I spoke to a lot of economists and specialists about this, they thought they thought it was an anomaly. They thought it was just, you know, asymmetric. Maybe people didn't know where the jobs were, asymmetric information, temporary issues. Um, there were a couple of them who floated the idea that maybe the one-child policy was starting to bite, but nobody really took it seriously at the time. Nobody thought that China's fertility would have fallen so much uh, so quickly as a result of the one-child policy. What brought about the one-child policy? The phrase you hear in China a lot is, is this word, ren tai duo, too many people. Uh, you only have to go and take a subway ride in China during rush hour and you will feel it. You will feel ren tai duo. So China is very popular. China and India are some of the oldest civilizations. They have all the um, you know, population huge many, many people. So the idea of wanting to reduce population growth for prosperity is very strong. And and also, of course, uh, the movie that we're, you're going to be talking about, this is very much an idea du jour of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that the population growth was going to overwhelm the planet. With China, for very good reason, you know, um, before they had the one-child policy, before they had some of these population control policies, uh, Mao was in the other direction, Chairman Mao. He was sort of in the whole Soviet mindset that he would create a human wall of bodies, you know, the more people so, you know, women who had like five or six babies were sort of given like medals and accolades, like Supermom. He saw he, he saw the population growth as a necessary evil to combat capitalism, that, you know, that this, you know, strength, you know, the more the better. Then so they swung back the other way when they realized the population was overwhelmed, was growing. I think in the 50s or 60s, average family size was about six kids per family. Partly also because they had some ruinous political policies. Like Mao also had these crazy ideas that they would leap into the industrial age and he would have everybody, you know, turn from farms into industrial centers and melt down their cooking pots. They, he called this, they, this is called the Great Leap Forward. It caused huge famines, you know. Suddenly people went from farming to try and turn into backyard collectors to, to produce steel. And so all these, it caused massive famines, hundreds of millions of people died. So there was always a sense, China has a very, very tumultuous wide swings and changes for the last, you know, 50 years. These last 30 or 40 years that China's had where it's been a steady growth and um, no major, except for 1989, um, uh, it's actually unprecedented for modern Chinese history. So, How do they go about rolling this out and implementing it? At the time when China started this out, um, you know, the Club of Rome and Paul Ehrlich's book were very, very um, influential. In the West, this was, there were things that were actively discussed by scientists as sort of interesting mathematical procedures. I mean, they ran some scenarios in the uh, Club of Rome. And the MIT had a computer that ran some scenarios, you know, that sort of basically predicted that doomsday by now, that we would run out of food, that we wouldn't have sufficient resources. But for most of these um, predictions, these were all intellectual in some sense. But 
uh, Paul Ehrlich's book came out, The Population Bomb came out in 68. 69 started the United Nations Population Fund, so UNFPA, they called it at the time. And so there was very, very interest in controlling the numbers, but the numbers particularly of <clears throat> how, how shall I say it? Colored people. Yeah, right? You know, um, we didn't want the black people and the yellow people. <laughs> that was that's concerned. I mean, it, it, was, it certainly wasn't targeted at the West. When these things started out, uh, China themselves were very interested. Some of the architects of the Chinese one-child policy were actually rocket scientists. And this is partly as also China's own history, uh, because in the past, you know, they had the Cultural Revolution, where all the members of the intelligentsia were persecuted and savaged and killed. And basically, you know, after that whole decade, anybody who was a you know an academic or who would not dare to voice any opinions that were against the government because they learned to their great cost and what how horrible that would be. Now, the only group that was sort of left untouched were the defense scientists. And so they were the ones who were sort of given task, this kind of task of reducing population growth fell to them. But, you know, because it was done with no input from sociologists or demographers or economists and all, it was primarily seen as a sort of, uh, like, I, I would guess it's like machine, you know, China is very technocratic at the time, but they saw it as like sort of, okay, growth trajectory, we want to achieve this and that. So Deng Xiaoping basically said, we want to achieve a thousand US dollars per capita GDP by the year 2000. That was the stated goal, you know, to be um, higher up in the, uh, the, the uh, economic food chain. And so the scientists sort of calculated that, and they figured that it would not be possible without moving to a sort of um, one-child-per-family household rule. The funny thing is, even before they did that, China actually had some population reduction policies in place. They were not as coercive, but they were actually more effective. So the, before the one-child policy, China actually had this thing called a later, longer, fewer campaign. So the idea was to encourage people to have kids later, have fewer of them, and space them longer apart. And this was in the 70s, before the one-child policy. And during this one decade, the, the fa- population reduction was actually the greatest. So family size went from six kids per family to three. There was a lot of argument among demographers that really, if they had kept to that policy, then they, instead of switching to a much more radical one-child policy, they could have still reduced the population without some of these negative consequences that have resulted from the one-child policy. And how do they go about actually enforcing that when it comes out? Oh, it was hard because China is a huge country. So, you know, there were some parts where enforcement wasn't very good. Um, there were some parts where it did, and, and even and even the name itself is very misleading because if you assume one child policy, you think everybody in China was limited to one child, but it wasn't really true. Roughly a third of all households were limited to a strict one child per household. And most of these were all in the city centers. And then over time, they realized that there's just no way you can enforce it so strict for a whole country the size of China where you can fit two Europe, Europe's in there. You just, you just can't. So they, they created ex- small exceptions because, you know, um, I think the Chinese call it uh, threading the, the needle to get the whole idea is, you know, ma- making small concessions so that you could get the bigger picture. So, for example, they knew, for example, farmers people in the farmland really, really need sons. They want sons. So they would allow the concession of if you had the first child and it was a girl, they would allow you to have a second child um, after a period of time. 
Uh, you could also have maybe a second child if you belong to one of China's minority tribes. Let's say if you were uh, Tibetan or from the Xinjiang region. Um, so that was one concession too. You would also maybe have be allowed to have more than one child if you worked in a sort of a hazardous profession, uh, like if you're a coal miner or a fisherman. And then, of course, there was always the one where if you paid, you know, um, if you were willing to pay for this. But the, by and large, the end result was, you know, it wasn't a free-for-all for fertility. There were restrictions in your family size. And when you did not follow those restrictions, sometimes the penalties could be very severe. That was it. They had to make it hurt. And that's how they kept it up. So there was a whole network that came about, enforcement that came about. And so the punishments um, for you breaking the quota could range from losing your job, if you worked in a government sector, let's say if you were a teacher or a college professor or a civil servant, you could lose your job uh, if you had more than one child. They were pretty strict about that. The second one would be um, fines, right? Anywhere from between two to ten times your household income. And so these multiples could be uh, subject to that if you broke your, if you went over your quota. Or you, uh, or, or you know, and sometimes in many cases it was hard to enforce that. It was much easier to do this sort of thing in cities, right, where you can control payments, where you where you have work units in in the old Chinese way. But in the countryside, obviously, it was hard. There were many people who are farmers who did not have a regular income, so you couldn't confiscate their money, or it was very hard to. So what um, a lot of times the practice was was to make it hurt, was to go and uh, maybe raise your farmland or damage your property or take. Um, valuable things. Um, I, I talked to some population enforcers who say, well, you know, they, they kept gangs of people who would go and, and sort of maybe take things of value from a country. Like, no matter how poor you are, they would find something to take. Even if it was just homespun cloth or grain, uh, they, the idea was to make it hurt so that it wasn't, you couldn't blithely just have many children. You had to punish. Uh, that was, that was the, the stick. And then, um, and of course, the worst sticks were basically forced sterilization or forced abortions, and that happened. So even though theoretically, I think it was um, against the law to, uh, to force women to have abortions after the six months, in practice, it happened. It happened as late as 2010 uh, in one case where a woman who was pregnant with a second child at seven months was basically taken away for a forced abortion. And um, somebody snapped a picture of her lying in a bed next to the fully formed fetus. Um, and, you know, at seven months, you know, it, it looks a baby. And so people in China were really shocked to find that these were the things that were still happening as late as 2010. When it came to women getting pregnant or not getting pregnant, I'm sure there must have been some sort of rollout of sex education that comes along with this. It, it, there isn't, it isn't. This is a Chinese, particular Chinese thing, right? Um, they were very interested in preventing birth. So um, there was mandatory, for example, for women, and for, in some cases men too, uh, in, in some cases for a long time, mandatory replacement of IUDs. Uh, you know, so after you have your first child, or then you you have an IUD place, and these were specially designed so that the woman um, was not easily taken out, you know, at all. After you had your quota, you were required to be sterilized. They did not trust you to do your own barrier method, condoms, or whatever. There was a requirement you had to be sterilized, whether you like it or not, and they could withhold your payments or fine you and everything if you refused to do that. And in some cases, some of these were done in such an assembly line fashion that some women had severe health issues after that for a long time. And in some cases, um, when I wrote about this big earthquake that happened in Sichuan in 2008, a lot of people 
who uh, lost her only child in that earthquake because it was a massive earthquake and that area had been the test ground for the one child policy, even though it was a rural area. So the first inkling I had was I was very puzzled in the first few weeks after the earthquake when I saw so many parents going to the hospital and what they were doing was having reversals of these sterilization procedures that they've been forced to have, um, you know, many years ago when they had their child because now they realize that child is dead. I need to have a second child. Maybe I'm like maybe 40 or 50. I'm desperate, but I'd have to try. So this was the first inkling I had of that, you know, so these were part of the, the procedures. But the problem with China's sex education was it's all about uh, after the fact. There was, there's nothing, even now today, there's nothing about teaching sex education at schools. So, you know, wearing condoms or, or using, you know, preventative measures or how babies are made. So many of my Chinese friends see abortion as a preventative method because they were not taught sex education in schools. It's not discussed very clearly. People are shy about the issue. So they're not taught about the consequences of sex. It's only after the fact. So I've had many friends who've had like multiple abortions because they were pregnant after they didn't really do anything before it was after so this is the odd anomaly of of china it still happens today you had mentioned before you know you're one of five girls and there was a, a real preference set for boys and you talked about you know people in, in the farmland being able to have a boy or try to have a boy after having a girl was there any sort of uh preemptive abortion happening if you found out what the sex of your child was? Oh, definitely. Not in my time because I'm 45 now. I was born 72. So at the time, 72, no, they didn't have that kind of technology. But starting from the, I think, probably the 90s, you know, um, sex selective abortions were being performed because they, you could, uh, you do um, scans and, and some of these scans were made by major companies like General Electric. And these scanners were uh, were, were small enough and portable enough that they, it was, you know, being used in countrysides in, in India and China. So you, people could scan for the sex of the child as early as, uh, very early on. And so as a result of that, um, they started to have abortions. Sort of, uh, so the practice of infanticide abandonment of girl babies fell, but uh, the practice of what's called gendercide, which is you know, sex selective abortion, started to rise. And so what happened was you started to have huge amounts of sons being born. So China is the place that has the largest uh, sex uh, imbalance ratio. So normally in the world, the, the general numbers are like, for every 100 girls that are born, about 105, 106 uh, no, having 100 girls that are born, 105, 106 boys are born. Nature makes a few more boys born than girls because boys, <laughs> it's generally perceived that boys are violent creatures who uh, sort of, you know, kill or die themselves earlier, do some sort of awful stuff. So nature creates that balance at birth. So about 100 girls, 105 or 6 are seen as the norm. China has about 115 boys born for every 100 girls. And that's, seen, that's the, one of the highest in the world. And in some provinces where um, we you know, tend to be the poorer provinces in China, the sex ratio imbalance is as high as 134 boys for every 100 girls. Uh, and what it has resulted in is 2030, um, there will be 30 million more men than women in China, 30 million more surplus men, they call them bachelors. And so in, if you think about those numbers, that's actually the population of Canada. 
So imagine a whole, if all of Canada was all single, presumably horny, lonely men um, with no prospect of women, brides, families for the future down the line. That That's kind of the scenario that China is definitely facing, is already facing. That sounds like the entire population of 4chan right now. <laughs> the problem is that most of the men who are very unlikely to to to, to get married or find bachelors, uh, find women, they call them guangguan in China, which means bare branches. They are the reproductive dead ends of their family tree, and these men are mostly the the poorest. It's the farmers who can't find brides. It's the men who don't live in the cities who have the hardest times because women have more options. And, of course, the, the, the opposite of that is the absence of women, right? It's the presence of men and the absence of women. So by um, some estimates, as many as 40 to 60 million women in China are missing. What do you mean by missing? That means the women who were never born, who were born, who were given away. Um, and so now China is at the opposite end of the population spectrum. They, uh, they just moved to a two-child policy. Let's talk about moving to a three-child policy. Um, you know, they are uh, in a stage where they are worried about population growth for the future, who's going to support this um, huge numbers of old people. They need to grow workers for, to keep China's economic and growth engine going. And so the problem is not only have they reduced their population sharply of the one-child population, they've reduced that particular portion of the population which is most concerned with babies, which is to say women. Where are you going to find the mothers of tomorrow <laughs> well, when you've reduced your women of today? So many people of that generation are only children. Do they even want to have two kids? I mean, it was good enough for me. Why should I bother having two kids? And especially because it's so cost prohibitive to have a child in China. Well, yes. Um, so the problem is now they've, they've completely switched the other angle, which is, again, makes this so fascinating for China, right? It's like they've gone so far trying to actively encourage. My joke is that it, they haven't switched to a, well, they're switching from a one-child policy to a please have one more child policy. And of course, the problem is all the methods they've used in the past, you know, sticks instead of carrots, don't work the same way. It's, it's much easier to take a woman for a forced abortion than to sit on her and force her to have more kids, right? In, in, in today's modern society. So um, that's an issue. So that's one problem, right? Um, everything in modern society uh, is joining together to create falling birth rates. And we see that um, in places like Europe and Japan and so on. We're not talking South Sudan or all these other places, which are a very different set of circumstances. We're talking modern societies, fairly stable economies, um, where women are educated and have choices. So, you know, all this points towards smaller families, and especially urbanization is a big, big force. China has gone in this last decade from being primarily rural to, to primarily urban, and that's never happened before. So, again, you know, cities, you need smaller families. You don't need big families at all. Um, and also on top of that is, like you said, the relentless propaganda. You, they China spent 30-something years basically telling everybody that the one child is ideal. You have no idea how much bombardment that goes on and that sort of thing. You know, pictures, subliminal messaging, everything. It's very hard to undo all that in one generation. Does You have this one generation. I mean, why is there a billion-dollar advertising business? <laughs> because subliminal messaging works. And so you have a whole generation. You spent time telling them that one child is the greatest, the best, and the ideal. And now you are trying to switch on. You can, it's very hard to turn on a dime, and that's an issue too. Yes, and and cost is is huge. You know, China has gone from a communist country where there was free. Ch- 
childcare, free healthcare, free schooling, to a very uh, uh, capitalist economy. So a lot of these costs are borne privately. And they also have all these problems with, um, they haven't really made any kind of rules that sort of enforce gender equity. You know, it's still a very patriarchal society. So women now say, well, why should I have two, uh, under this two-child policy, they're saying they're being discriminated against workplace-wise. A lot of employees don't want to hire them because they fear they'll take two lots of maternity leave. There's also more pressure on working women now to have that second child because, you know, your, your parents, your in-laws, your husband is, is pressuring you whether you want to or not. And a lot of women are resisting because, you know, in the rest of the world also, I mean, women do take on the bulk of childcare and child rearing, you know, and work and be working women too. So, um, and, and China also, because, you know, for the fifties onwards, it was a communist country. So all, everybody was in a workforce, men and women. So the whole phenomena of the housewife in China is very rare. You are still expected to work, work in a somewhat glamorous job and still have children. So oh, for a lot of women, it's, it's a lot, you know. <laughs> One of the things that surprised me about your book was talking about this kind of population experiment happening in Puerto Rico, which I had no idea about. In India, that happened in India um, during the time of, in, yeah. So, um, yeah, so the, the whole, I mean, and as you said, and this is partly a, a, a sort of a byproduct of Paul Ehrlich's book in a way, because Paul Ehrlich's book begins in India. He describes what it's like, this press of humankind upon him um, begins in India, you know, and so um, it's it's almost very, alarm, it's definitely very alarming and scary. And definitely for uh, the global planners of uh, population growth, they saw India and China as the big markers, the places that should reign in their population. So the very first gold medals that were ever given for population planning by the UN uh, FPA was to China and to India, China for the one-child policy and India for the forced sterilization, uh, which happened during Indira Gandhi's time, where they you know, took men away and forcibly sterilized them. But the difference between China and India is India is a democracy. And China is not. So the blowback from that forced sterilization um, uh, plan almost um, took down Indira Gandhi temporarily. You know, people were able to vote with their feet. I mean, vote with their, at the ballot box. And they did not want these kind of forced policies. I mean, who does, you know, at the end of the day? Um, and this has always been a very interesting point of view that I see between the the population planners and the people who had to pay the price. Because, you know, I and I still meet a lot of people who are worried about climate change or population growth. And, you know, very, very, very rightly so, because these are very serious issues. But um, who are still supporters of the one-child policy, for example. And, and the thing that, you know, I always say is, you know, yes, it was important to reduce population growth. But the methods that China used, which include coercion, would you support that if it came down to you? If somebody, if, if would you support this kind of a policy if it meant that they would come and take somebody you love, your mother or your daughter, for a forced abortion? And then, of course, this is the point where it's a little hard to stomach. Ms. Fong, what are you working on these days? I'm writing a second book, but um, I'd rather not say too much about it because it's all very early stages. But I also write um, a lot of um, global policy columns and stuff. Yeah. So, and I'm raising two children. <laughs> yeah. I didn't keep to the one child policy. <laughs> <laughs> well, raising two kids is pretty much a full time job in itself. So it's uh, kudos to you for doing more than that. 
Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much, Mike. I can't really remember when I last had any hope. And I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. Because really, since women stopped being able to have babies, what's left to hope for? The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet. The youngest person on Earth was 18 years, 4 months, 20 days, 16 hours and 8 minutes old. The ultimate mystery, why are women infertile? Some say it's genetic experiments, pollution. Why do you think we can't make babies anymore? Doesn't matter. It's all over in 50 years. It's too late. Move along! Move along! Hello, Theo. Have you been? I'm sorry about the theatrics. Police have been a pain lately. I haven't seen you for nearly 20 years. I need your help. Not for me, a girl. I need to get her to the coast, past security checkpoints. It's hard for me to look at you. He had your eyes. So why did you come to me? I trust you. Show him. Now you know what's at stake. to meet the boat. What is this boat? The Human Project have sent a boat. The Human Project? It's the greatest minds in the world working for a new society. Your baby is the miracle the whole world has been waiting for. We will find a way to get you to the Human Project, I promise you. We're almost there, Keith. We're almost there. All right, we are back, and we're talking about Children of Men this time. This 2006 film from director Alfonso Cuaron is a very loose adaptation of P.D. James's 1992 novel of the same name. The film stars Clive Owen as Theo Farron, who's biding his time on planet Earth as the population is dying or killing itself off. No babies have been born in over 18 years, which has exacerbated social strife, leading to terrorism, mass suicide, and a refugee crisis. Now, Keith, when was the first time you saw Children of Men, and what did you think? Well, I have an interesting history with this movie, because two of the producers on the film, Armin Bernstein and Mark Abraham, produced my film A Midnight Clear. So when they were first trying to get this made, they actually sent me an early version of the script back, I don't know how many years before the film was finally actually done, you know, two, three, four, five. I mean, it was it was a while. It was actually probably, it was longer rather than shorter. And that script was not that great. And it was not very much like the final film that got made. Um, I don't know how many drafts it was in or whatever, but it sounded much closer to the original book. Uh, in terms of plot, I, I didn't read the book, so I can't comment on the the, the quality of the book. But but in terms of the idea, it, it was much more filled with coincidences. I mean, you, the, the fact that that our main character kind of got caught up in this whole thing felt very convenient and very kind of again shoehorned in. And so I didn't like the script, and I passed on it. Not that they had the money to make it, so they were offering it to me to read. They weren't offering it to me like saying, "Oh, you know, we'll go make this film." 
Um, but I said, yeah, I, I feel like I've seen somewhat similar ideas before and, and it's not for me. So when the film came out and started getting all this amazing press, I kind of was like, really? Because I didn't love the script. So I actually did not run out to see it right away <laughs> because I was just not I hadn't been impressed by the version I read. And when I finally saw it, which I think was at the tail end of its theatrical run, I was blown away by it. I mean, I just thought it was an amazing film. Uh, on every level, I mean, just the, the the filmmaking, the cinematography, the acting, and the writing. I mean, they had they had completely reworked the story from the script I had read and turned it into something very very powerful um, and much more complicated and much more subtle and and just you know something that felt original and political and 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 full of very important ideas. And so it was it was so it was sort of a a shock and a delightful surprise for me to see what had happened to something that, that wasn't always on that level, you know, at, at, during a, during the course of its life. I saw this for the first time, I believe, right uh, when it was available for home consumption. Didn't see it in the theater because I really, I thought it was going to be kind of rote territory, but people seemed floored by it and floored by the direction. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I'm going to take a look at this. And I, I was, I was shocked by how much I liked it. I really thought it was going to be kind of like full of cliches because you read the synopsis for it and, and it really does tread on some of some ideas that you think, Oh, I've seen this and maybe I've even seen it better. But I, I loved it the first time I saw it and I was kind of bummed that I didn't see it in the theater. I'm glad I didn't see a preview for this before I saw it because I watched the preview for it tonight. And I was just like, this preview isn't very good. It I just, remember the one I saw not being good either. I really thought it was going to be like, like, ah, this is, this is completely worth worthless. Like it's not presenting any new ideas. Right. And even the, the reveal that Key is pregnant in the trailer, I was like, oh, well, all right. We're supposed to, if it's going to be set in a world without babies, then let's watch a movie set in a world without babies. And then Key is a surprise like it should be in the film. But whatever. I, that's fascinating, Keith, that you were involved with this. This is another one of those times, just so the listeners know, that I had actually no idea that you were involved with this film before we started talking like when, when you were on the love and death episode, I really didn't know that your family and you had a relationship to Woody Allen and that you were actually in sleeper and all this kind of craziness. So I'm just lucky when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> so, well, the thing is, I mean, I wasn't really involved with it. I just got to read an early version of it. But, but the, but the thing is, if you work in the business, those kind of weird overlaps and things happen all the time. I mean, there's so many films like that, that I read early versions of or whatever, um, and I think that just the nature of working as a director or whatever is you get sent tons of scripts, uh, most of which never get made, period. But some many of which do get made or some of which do get made years later in a very different incarnation. And it's always fascinating to see how things evolve. And, and occasionally it's rare, but occasionally this really evolved from something that was kind of OK into something amazing. But, you know, if I went down the list of every script I'd ever read, yeah, it'd be, you'd be surprised. There'd probably be a lot of things that we would we could we could end up talking about that I would I could say, oh, yeah, I read an early version of that. Well, that's the thing is coming at it from my angle. Here I am scouring the Internet looking for these early drafts. I managed to find an earlier draft, but I'm talking like six months before it was made kind of thing. So like the because there's six writers listed. Yeah, on it's, this, it's I think. a big list. It's uh it's uh, I actually have the IMDB page here, so um, it's one, two, three, four, five. You're absolutely right, six. Although one is is P.D. James for the novel, so it's five screenwriters. I think there were two when I read it. You got a definitely an earlier version, and it's crazy to see how it changed. And I would like to kind of you know 
put a, a, a stick in the water and see where some of these things happen. Because to me, P.D. James's novel is a stepping stone between ZPG and Children of Men, the movie. But the book sits kind of squarely in the middle there. The book came out in, I want to say, 92. And it's really interesting to read the book and having seen ZPG because parts of the book have things to do with now we're, we're in a different territory here because people can't have babies as opposed to the law is prohibiting them from having babies. So women uh, will start adopting baby dolls. Women will start adopting animals. They'll have like christening ceremonies for cats. And so they're like using other things in place of babies and treating things like babies that shouldn't necessarily be treated 100% like babies. I mean, we all treat our, our pets like they were our children, but they're taking it to extreme. So taking, you know, they're, they're having problems with the church as far as allowing cats to be christened, these kind of things. So, and they have to like, you know, change the structure of society because of this lack of, of children. So one is forced on us. The other is, is uh, something that's being forced on us by nature. And I like that there's never an explanation for, why we're not having children and you can it's kind of like the zombies in in night of the living dead right you can kind of think maybe it was that satellite that crashed in here maybe it was i don't know tainted weed or something but we'll never get an answer for why that is and i also like that in the the earlier draft of the screenplay that i read they really made a point to say that it was in in the book it's the men who are infertile and the women are fertile in the script that I read, it was the women who are unfertile and the men who are fertile. And I like that in the movie, I don't think we ever get that. And I, I like that it's just, it, it's not like we're passing blame on stuff. Because it really felt like, oh, well, the men are fine, but it's the women's problem. And the whole idea of, like, they were switching genders all over the place as far as, like, oh, it was a daughter and this one, it was a son and this one, it was a daughter and that, it was a son and that. And it, it, so they really made a point to kind of just keep it a little bit more neutral as far as that goes. And I think that Children of Men, the, the final product is so smart because they stayed away from a lot of the pitfalls that were even there in that, like I was saying, the, the slightly earlier version of the, the screenplay. So I can't even imagine the version that you're reading because I'm sure they were littered with pitfalls. But I think that they handled it so well in the final film that they they saved themselves. Oh, yeah. no, it, it, I think it's a, a remarkable piece of writing. And, you know, I think the final draft that was filmed was great. I mean, it's just smart and the characters are so rich and everything feels very motivated, and it didn't seem unbelievable to me that, that Clive Owen would get involved with these people. I mean, the, the history they created for him and Julianne Moore's character, and the fact that he'd been an activist and kind of had moved away from it, and had, but had that sort of as part of who he was and it had lost. And they did a great job of sort of taking what had been a story that seemed when I remember my memories. I wish I remembered all more specifically. We're talking many years now, but it, I just remember the script I read feeling very arbitrary. Like, why are people doing what they're doing? And why is this guy giving up his life to, to do this other than that we have to have it because he's the hero? Um, and, and I really felt like they did a great job of really down to the small characters, really making very rich people. I mean, the, the character that uh, of, of the uh, of the cop that, uh, yeah, Sid, Peter Mullen. 
Uh, it was, he's, he's, you know, he's an amazing character and very complicated. And he's got maybe a four minutes of screen time, but he's actually on screen. And yet he goes through like three or four different changes. And, and I just feel like it, it's a beautifully written film in that way. And that even the small characters, even the so many of the Julian, Julian Moore's characters, co-conspirators, and you're constantly learning new things about them and they're revealing new things about themselves. And nobody's ever simply what you think they are when you first meet them. Everybody's got a, another side to them, good or bad, that, that pops up. And uh, I, I think that's really good writing and, and, and unusual in, in, uh, you know, in like a big studio sort of film like this. You know, usually characters are, are much more archetypes and you kind of get who they are two minutes in and that's who they stay. Yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity in this movie, and I think you guys both touched on things with the genders and also with the characters and thinking you might know a character's motivations and then being sort of surprised when they do another reveal that I think serves the movie really, really well. I don't think I would have responded as well to it as if things were spelled out, like if we knew who was infertile or why it happened. I think there's um, there's a scene with Key's, you know, who's act- the woman who's acting as her nurse, saying like she she was you know, working in a hospital. And then all of a sudden it wasn't just that there weren't any new pregnant women, but also women were losing their babies. I thought that was really interesting because it just, it built this like horrifying, like rich world that I hadn't even thought about. Like, so how did it happen? So people stopped getting pregnant. Oh, but also they were miscarrying. And it was just this kind of like quick little section with her that we sat with this character who who had up until then hadn't really been that fleshed out that at, not only added to her backstory but added to the added to the world which it was just moment after moment like that that i thought was really really effective and there was a sadness in that scene i mean i love that scene too it was very you know it's again the writing the acting you really kind of they they give you a somehow in the way she plays it i, I just felt like you really were there you got to see what she saw just in the way she tells the story and it's very heartbreaking, and I think that's what distinguishes uh, Children of Men from a lot of other science fiction stories or that have an action element and a chase element. I mean, this has got a lot of sort of commercial elements, but there's also a tremendous sadness to the story and, and, and emotion to it, and, and, and I think that's what sort of elevates it above a lot of things that usually exist in the genre is, is the humanity and the, the painfulness of it. It's funny. As I'm thinking about this film, I'm thinking that – all of the critiques that we had for ZPG, I would completely throw those away for this movie. If we had an opening scroll for this film, it would be death. If we concentrated on the sci-fi, because this takes place in the future, 2027, right? Not too far away from us. But if we concentrated on the, the sci-fi elements of it, this movie would be dead as well. I mean, we get those little hints that I like, like seeing screens, seeing the the reflection of the screen inside of the car where we see the speedometer up on uh, the display up on the windshield itself, or seeing across the street where the coffee shop blows up, seeing uh, moving things on the the building itself, which are kind of, you know, we're just about there, right? It's probably 10 years away before we actually get that kind of stuff. Maybe it's happening in Times Square right now. I don't know. But those things are just such little throwaway touches and they're just, they add to the richness of the world as opposed to what we were talking about with ZPG where it was like, well, where's your imagination? You know, and we just get like stupid little things like the way that the cars look. They kind of look familiar, but they don't. So it's nice that 
that just builds up the richness, but this movie doesn't live or die by science fiction. In fact, I think it would die by science well, fiction. Well, in, in a way, it's part of what's different about this than ZPG. ZPG is all about a world where everything really has changed, where we have to, we have to accept that we're in a world that's very different from the world we're now in, where things have come, you know, things are so polluted and awful that everything about life doesn't function the way we, we function. What I think makes Children of Men powerful is not it is near future and it's not that different i mean i think part of the point of the film is this might as well be now and that's part of why as an audience i think we get so caught up because it's not some freaky future world that doesn't seem anything like this it's not logan's run or something where it's like okay there's you know everything looks different and i think that's what makes it powerful is that it's it's now i mean the, as you said they're wonderful touches i mean they, they did beautiful things to just kind of let the, the fact that it's the future exist but i think they very wisely and very I, I would assume uh, very intentionally made it so close to now that it might as well be and thus it could be us in that story part of that is just the nature of the two different stories i mean zpg you had to say well everything's different because uh, you know they're not eating human food that we know of they, they can't walk without masks they can't but everything in children of men is like that's kind of it's it's what would happen if tomorrow babies stop being born yeah, it adds to the immediacy of it, and, and I think you need that to connect to the characters. So they don't feel like some far-off versions of, of humans. It's just, it's it's us, you know? Well, I think that the camera work adds to the immediacy as well. That whole idea of the roaming camera, the longer takes, the handheld camera, it gives things kind of a newsreel feel to it. So it feels like we're right there in the moment. And I love the way that the camera will stop and will look at things that Theo isn't looking at. Our main character has seen this stuff already. We haven't. But the camera will take a moment and will stop and turn and look at things. We get to hear this you know, poor woman on the street who's in a cage and just her cries and everything. Or we get to see later on there's uh, this kind of a, a war-torn street and we stop and look at this woman who's there holding her dying son in her arms. Theo's moved on already. We kind of have to catch up with him in, in what he's doing, but the camera is giving us that. And I love looking in the background of these shots and seeing what's going on that this isn't we don't have a uh, a Mary Sue or anybody in this film where we have to stop and explain things to people we're just there and Theo is going to go about his day and do whatever he wants to do but the camera is giving us a little bit of a glimpse into this unusual world which to your point is just a push away we're, we're almost there with this and that brexit happened makes this feel like we're even closer to well there's this. so much in watching the film again there's so much in terms of where america's at politically i mean this whole thing about illegal aliens and kicking out everybody from from uh, england who isn't you know who isn't english and particularly people of color but, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's really there's there's a lot in that film. That you go, wow, hey, welcome to America 2018. Uh, and I had forgotten quite how heavy that was. And seeing it again, it was freaky to, to, to watch that film with the amount of sort of xenophobic rhetoric at, that, that we have coming from our own government at this point. Going, it sounds a lot like this movie, uh, which was which was sort of something I had forgotten. I knew it was a part of it. But, man, it is very intense to hear some of the same phrases that we hear from like the president coming from the characters in that film. Mm, there was one point where I, I even like thought to myself, oh, this is too real. Like I got a, I got a little upset during parts of it, and I, I was startled by how like relevant it was. 
in a really disturbing way like this is this dystopian future and like oh yeah that's super familiar ugh kind of feeling when the film was made in 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 2006 i mean that there there's always been a nationalist thing in england and in europe and america but but it's become so much more um forward you know in in the whole west now this is the kind of the kind of uh this xenophobic, you know, America first, Germany first, whatever first, um, UK first, Brexit. Where it, it's really intensified since the making of the film, and, and it, it makes the film feel very prescient, you know, in, in that it it plugged into something that was sort of boiling under the surface, but that since come disturbingly much more to the surface since the film was made. Yeah, there was always low-key versions of, of, of these ideas going on. But, I mean, in Children of Men, you have people in cages. Like, there's no hiding agendas in this movie, and it's just, it's very much mirrored the lack of feeling the need to hide that we have, that we're seeing now. So, yeah, very interesting. And those repetition of the commercials, Ugh, you know, yeah. she could be your dentist, he could be your gardener, and you got to turn these people in. The book is written half narrative, half journal. So the journal part of it really reminds me of 1984, even though he doesn't know who he's writing the journal to, which is kind of like Winston Smith as well. Winston Smith knows that he's living in a, a in a shithole, but at least there are children still being born. Whereas this is, you know, the, there's so many moments where we're re- rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, right? I mean, the, his cousin. Well, I don't know if he's his, is he his cousin in this, the uh, Danny Houston character, who is uh, he's he's Teddy in this, right? As opposed to. His name in the book is Zahn, and it's funny because Teddy, who runs this project called the Ark of Arcs, who is in a higher government position, he's one of the main characters in P.D. James's books, and he's the main antagonist. He runs the government, he runs the whole show, and everything is about Theo growing up with Zahn and their childhood and all this kind of stuff. And Danny Houston's just in one scene in this film, and he is there to provide the MacGuffin, these letters of transit. So immediately I'm thinking of uh, Casablanca. He's there for that one scene, and that's it. I was like, wow. So we don't necessarily fear him. The real threats from this movie or of this movie come from Julian's team. It's not even Julian, the, the Julian Moore character, but it's her team of revolutionaries. So it's it's interesting that... You know, they, there's uh, yes, there are government forces, and you would think that in a quote-unquote normal movie, yeah, the government's going to get you. But in this one, it's more the people who are supposed to be helping you are actually after. Well, part of what I loved was it sort of like everybody was the villain. I mean, it was like the government, it was the revolutionaries, it was. I mean, there was sort of nowhere for Clive Owen to turn. So it, it was sort of he had to sort of go it alone. One of the things that often bugs me in movies is like, you know, we've got, especially in American movies, but not that this is an American movie particularly, but, um, but this very kind of thing of the lone male, you know, having to take on the world by himself in this movie, it's actually justified. I mean, there really is nowhere for him to go. And the safest thing to do is to, is to get away from everybody on every side. Uh, and that's the only hope that sort of he has and the key has that the human race has. But in this film, unlike a lot of films, it's really justified. And, and, and it seems very believable that in the world where everything is, the stakes are that high that every group has lost any sense of perspective. And, and you know, you've got that incredible battle at the end where you've got the, these, this sort of Muslim group in the, in the, in the, uh, 
in the internment camp fighting the soldiers and just like everyone has lost any moral compass. And, and then you've got these two human beings trying to say, survive their way through all of that. And that's, that to me was something really kind of wonderful about the film because it avoided the villain. I mean, I'm remembering now the script I read, Zom was very much still part of it. And he was the villain. He was the mustache twirling bad guy from beginning to end of the film. And I think it was a big face off between them at the end. And it was very much a classic sort of Hollywood, you know, good guy, bad guy. And this film, you know, bad guy is the world. And that's a really interesting thing. Yeah. It makes there be no, no safe places. And, and I think that that's really effective um, because there's no babies being born. There wouldn't be safe places. Like you said, Mike, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Like, of course, it's coming from all directions. Everybody has an agenda. Nobody has that compass because people stop believing in God. There's no God or God took our babies away or, you know, nature took our babies away. It, it's just kind of a free for all. And that's, I think, why that last scene maybe that big battle scene could have felt a little cliche with the the people seeing the baby and it kind of like recentering them and bringing their humanity back that could have felt a little heavy-handed but honestly even upon rewatching this time it didn't i knew it was going to happen i knew it was coming and i was still really moved by it like they see this this crying baby and and they just stop fighting because this baby is what's most important and i think that it's really effectively captured I'll be honest, I started crying again when I watched it. I I cried the first time, and I cried last night, too, when I watched it. And it's just like, why am I crying? But everyone moving aside, the old people reaching for the baby, just everyone wanting to see this baby. And then, yeah, those soldiers outside just parting ways and, and just letting them through. It was amazing. Well, it's funny. It shows, you know, I think the world of film, how the line between awful and great is so narrow because I agree with you. I mean, that scene could have been like what Grishin was saying, you know, that, that scene could have been so over the top. I mean, if you described it to me, I'd probably go, Oh God, you can never, that you, there's no way to pull that off and not seem hokey and, and forced and like you're begging for emotion. And yet in the way that Coron shot it and, and the actors played it and the, the way the extras played it, it's incredibly, incredibly moving. And yeah, one false move, and that could have been an almost laughably bad over-the-top scene. And instead, it's, I think, remarkably moving. And I remember when I saw it, a lot of people in the theater were crying. And, and it's really earned tears. It's not like it's not pushing the button and playing the music and begging you to cry. It's, it's really emotional. The music in this film is almost another character unto itself. And I like that we're spanning generations. Because for me, a lot of this movie is about generations we've got the older generation with jasper the michael kane character we've got the middle generation let's call it with theo and julianne and they were both it's like jasper was a revolutionary you know in his time theo and um, julianne were revolutionaries in their time they talk about protests and the in one version of the script they talked about um uh, fighting against the World Trade Organization. So they're more that era of it. And actually, their child died at a demonstration. It wasn't the flu in that version of the script I had read, um, which was good because in the book, Theo runs her over with a car, which isn't good, just backs up and takes her out with a car. Anyway, um, so we've got that. And then we've got, you know, Key as, as her generation. And so we've got older rock and roll. We've got the, uh, the, 
Crimson, uh, King Crimson. We've got the cover of, of the Rolling Stones. And then we move into more contemporary stuff. And we've got, I mean, we've got Aphex Twin on the uh, soundtrack, which was great. I didn't think that Jasper would be an Aphex Twin fan, but apparently he is. And then we move into, uh, you know, even younger music, um, especially uh, I'm trying to think of uh, some of the songs in the soundtrack, but it's more contemporary to 2006 type music which is great so we have all of those things and i love that i mean to me music i realized that music was going to be a very important way to read this movie when they showed the battersea park station or battersea power station and they have the pig from uh, the cover of animals flying outside i was just like okay i really need to pay attention to how the music is being used and that they also start that scene off with in the court of the crimson king it's like okay so you can watch this movie just with the music being the cues and i'd say christine this is the second time that we've talked about something that uses that same, is it uh, Therundi for the mm-hmm. victims of Hiroshima uh, music? So I, I don't know what it is. We're, we're going to have to find where it's used uh, somewhere else so that we can yep, talk about can do a that hat trick. the next time. But <laughs> I was very surprised when that came up on the soundtrack. And I was like, I know that song now. I didn't even realize what it was the first time I watched this film. The music well, is really affecting in this movie. And it is, it is cool. Like, I I don't mean, want to sound trite by saying it's cool, but it's cool that it's being approached like, oh, of course this is the music that they would be listening to, or it makes sense that this is, is the music they'd be listening to, and it it really again it does that thing where it goes, okay, this isn't that far off, everyone. This this isn't some weird theremin music that that is completely we have no reference for. This is music that you know. You know, so strap in kind of thing. And I, I, I found that really interesting. I mean, to me, it felt dominated by older music. I mean, it is a mix, but it does feel I mean, there's more stuff that to, at least to, to my ear that was that was older. And it did all sorts of interesting things. It, it made it feel almost like a bit of a memory film. Like it's the future, but it's also the past. Uh, I mean, the fact that these are a lot of the, the music was from another time um, and not contemporary to the story of the film to me. I don't. I don't know how better to describe it, but it kind of makes it feel like we're we're seeing this through the Clive Owen character's memory in some way, and and that and that seems to color the film for me. It also kind of makes the point of view of the film a little bit the Michael Caine character, which is interesting um, because he's the one who's like always playing music. You know, the music of that era is sort of his music, and and again, it it, it sort of feels like it's adding a sense of perspective to the film that I think is really just very rich as well as just being super cool. But I mean, it, it, I, I feel like it does seem like it was dominated by film, by music from the sixties, seventies, eighties, um, much more than music from the, from, from the aughts when it was made. And, and I think that that's a really good, interesting choice in terms of doing what you're, what you're talking about, Mike, which is the, the generational thing. Yeah. Jasper is an interesting character. Cause he's, he and his wife, uh, Janice, who by this point, Janice is, pretty much gone though she's she's alive but she's not all there mentally at the moment and in the in the book she's pretty much has lost her marbles and also in the book it's interesting because the fishes come to theo and they want him to help and he's not really sure that he'll help and each one of the fishes the fishes are kind of for lack of a better term they're ridiculous because each one of them has a an issue and they 
don't know enough to necessarily bundle all the issues together. So they just kind of dump all of these things and some of them are petty and some of them are important. And, um, you know, Theo just has all these things and they're like, you need to go to your cousin and tell him about this and get all these things changed as if just having one conversation is going to change the world. So he is very reluctant to do it. And what it, what takes what it takes for him to get motivated is he goes and sees what they call a quietus ceremony and it's interesting because in the movie quietus is all over the place watching again the film last night when clive owen is kicking back on michael kane's couch there's a box right there in the frame very close up that says quietus on it and you see that box a few times and that's the box that michael kane takes the stuff out of and puts it in another box apparently and that's what he uses to eventually euthanize his wife and on a television set later on there's a quietus commercial that's happening and there's quietus mentioned a few times uh throughout the film and it's in the book he goes to this quietus ceremony and janice is there but she's not all together there and it seems like she's been drugged and it seems like these other old people have been drugged and they're taking them out to basically kill all the old people it's this supposed to be a voluntary suicide thing but it feels like it's not 100 percent voluntary and it it just makes him feel so awful and he actually ends up getting injured in this a a soldier comes along and bashes him in the head with uh with a gun and he gets so mad and and upset about this that that's what motivates him and i like that he doesn't necessarily have that motivating factor in here this this theo this character in this movie he's kind of a shit he's an alcoholic he uh he lied pretty much lies to his boss to get out of work to go hang out with his friend and smoke pot and he's just like you know, there's even a part where he is talking to the Julianne Moore character and, you know, she's like, oh, yeah, we were activists. And he's like, well, you were an activist. I was just there to get laid. And I like that he's this flawed character. He's not the hero that we were talking about before. He's not the guy. He's not Clive Owen from Shoot Him Up. He's not there to save that baby and go to town and, and kill everybody. He's a guy that wears flip flops through like a third of the movie. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's nice that he's human. In it, yeah, just to echo what you said, it the characters are human and they're flawed and they're dealing with something, and um, it's refreshing to see. And kind of like what Keith had said, it's nice that you always sort of understand um, Theo's motivation as to why he's where he is every time the movie pushes forward it makes sense you're never like well why doesn't he just take off or why don't they just do this his his character feels really lived in and and yeah flip-flops and all he's 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 there for the long haul and i think that that's really great it adds to how touching the end is too i think and i also didn't know how seriously to take something i mean when he's when he says always only there to get laid i had the feeling that it was more complicated than that and that the Julian Moore character would never have been involved with him if that had been all there was to it. <clears throat> you know, I think it's a guy, he's a guy who, to me, comes off as a guy who had a heart and did care and has kind of forced himself to become cynical in this horrifying world that he's mm-hmm. and, and kind of is trying to wear the mantle of, oh, I don't care. But when it comes down to it, it's why he does get involved is somewhere in there is a man who was once very involved. Uh, and that's why Julian Moore comes to him of everybody. I mean, you know, one of the things, like I said in the script I read that bugged me, was there was no reason to pick this guy. I mean, there's no, and there's no reason this guy would ever do it. Whereas in this situation, I really believe she'd go, 
I trust this man. I know what's underneath. Uh, I'm going to go to him because, yes, he has the connections we need, but I know that somewhere deep in there, there's still a soul. Uh, and I thought Clive Owen did a beautiful job of covering that soul, but leaving just enough of it sticking up to, for me not to go, okay, what's wrong with Julianne Moore that she's making this choice? No, I totally agree. And yeah, I think that he's being very cynical when he says that he was just there to get laid. Because he, like I said, when I watched this last night, I really got that Casablanca vibe. And he reminds me of Rick. You know, he reminds me of the guy who pretends to not care, but secretly cares. And he's not necessarily, you know, putting on a, a white hat and doing all this kind of stuff. He's just, he he finally acts when he has to act. And otherwise, he is going to put on that grumpy, disheveled kind of thing that he's doing because he did have a heart and it was broken. And I think it was broken when his, his son died. Yeah, and that's why we can get involved with him and care, um, and yet not have it be like, oh, of course he's the hero. Yeah, he's one of the most reluctant heroes that we've had in a long time, and it, but he does show up. When, it, when he needs to, he finally manages to show up, and especially in that last scene, in that battle scene. The battle scene is fantastic, but I have to say that that scene in the car is the one that takes my breath away when Julianne gets murdered. That's the thing that when I watched this the first time, I just said, Oh my God. I, cause normally like if you're watching a movie and they do a long take, sometimes you notice, sometimes you don't, sometimes your mind notices and other times, you know, the, the back of your mind will notice some things and then your front of the mind will notice other things. And there are times when you're watching something and you're like, have they done a cut? Yeah, this is this has been a really long time. And for whatever reason, when I went to see this the first time, I immediately honed in on just how wonderful the actual filmmaking was in that part of the movie. I don't know what it was that drew my attention to it. Maybe I'd heard somebody talk about it before, but I remember seeing this fairly close to when it opened in the U.S. and just was blown away by that. And then going back and watching how they made that scene was even more spectacular to realize all of the technical trickery that they had to do to make that happen. Not even talking about the digital trickery, but just the actual physical mechanics of it was just crazy. I had fim- similar feelings about that scene. I, the, the battle scene is fantastic and wonderful, but this is the one that always stuck out in my head to the point where this is, I think, my second rewatch of it. Every time I'll be surprised how early in the film it happens because it's such a grounding, like it's a grounding point for me in the movie. It happens and I'm like, wait, this is already happening? Like this is, this is my favorite part. And I, I, for some reason, I feel like it's, it's such a crescendo that, that, because it's not, you know, midway through or to the tail end, like I'm, I'm always taken off guard. It's just, it's really lovely. I love single takes or, you know, these long shots. And I think this one, they didn't just do it to, to flex a muscle. It was the storytelling there is just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think I was so caught up in it uh, that I, the first time I watched it, I didn't realize how insanely difficult and brilliant that car sequence was in terms of what they pulled off without cutting. Because I was just caught up in the story. I think it was the second time I saw it that I was like, oh, my God, wait a minute. How did they even do that? What are the physics of this? Um, I think I noticed the last the, the battle scene shot more because it's a more classic six minute long incredibly choreographed. I mean, I still think it's one of the best shots I've ever seen. I mean, the number of elements of choreography that had to go into that 
are just stunning. But it's more like other shots we've seen that that go on and on. So I think I was aware of that when I first saw the film. But I, I think the first time I was just so caught up in what was happening in the car, in the car scene, and, and being shocked by her being shot and being that I, I think it took a second viewing for me to realize I don't know how they did this. And I've been working in film since I was like 16 years old, and I wouldn't have a clue how you pull that off. Um, which is pretty amazing. I mean, I've gotten to the point where you know it's hard for me to look at something and go, I just have no how do you do this and they you know they did something that i i couldn't even begin to wrap my brain around right it's like when you watch birdman or uh, well i know that quran didn't do birdman but birdman being an exact example of a longer well the whole movie looks like it's one take but you can see moments where you're just like okay that's probably where they made the cut you know, it's not as obvious as rope, obviously. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like zoom into some fabric. We'll yeah. go into the back of someone's jacket. Okay, there's the cut. There are moments in Birdman where you're just like, okay, that's probably where the cut was or where the transition was. But Quaron was uh, got to be known later on for gravity and one of the longest takes that happens in that. But yeah, if watching this, you're just like, uh, you can't see the seams, and then seeing. Um, like I said, the making of stuff, which doesn't even talk about the making of that much. They just talk about it for just a few minutes. And I wanted to see the whole thing, like take me through everything in this shot. But just seeing the way that the actors were having to lay down in the car, they they had these tricked out seats where they would lay down. So as the camera's like moving past them, they would be down and then they would come back up. And watching the scene again, it's just it's like, I can't see any of that. I can't even imagine that these people were laying down a second ago and now they're up because they are all such top-notch actors. They're giving this amazing performance, even though they're probably flipping up and down <laughs> like crazy. In this yeah, car. it's, it's. I mean, just, just the physics. I mean, movie cameras are by nature large and moving a camera around in a car is hard. To do. It's hard to do even the simplest of ways. So to do it this complexly in the middle of a super emotional scene, you're right. I mean, the fact, the fact that those actors gave those performances and that they got that shot, it's just, it, it is really mind-boggling. Um, it's, you know, and, and, and yeah, Caron did it again in Gravity. I mean, he's he's become, I think, maybe, maybe our very best or among the very best at these kind of using a camera in, in novel ways to, to but, but not just in a showy way. I mean, what I love about his stuff is that he because he's very capable of making films that don't do that at all. I mean, some of his great greatest stuff is very simple, but but he's very capable of using a camera where you haven't seen before, but it feels grounded. It doesn't feel like oh he showed off. I mean, it feels like I mean some other people who do very fancy stuff. I feel like I feel very aware of the show off element of it. With him, it always feels like he's using that camera to underline the emotion or the intensity or the craziness or the out of controlness of a scene. It always feels like it's it's feeding the emotion. Not kind of saying, well, we're telling the story, but also look at what the cool thing I'm doing with the camera. I was really glad to read that during that battle scene at the end, there's some blood that gets onto the camera. And I was glad to hear that that was a mistake that they left in rather than digital blood. Because I can't stand these days when digital blood gets onto the camera lens like that. That to me is so chintzy. It's like, just I, I, stop I feel that. like it, if it accomplishes the exact opposite of if you're trying to make me feel like I'm there, now you've effectively taken me out completely. Because I'm thinking about the blood that's on the lens. If, uh, if it happens naturally, more power to him. But if somebody goes in there and intentionally does it after the fact, that's a bit much for me 
Well, and again, that's kind of what I was saying is somehow the way he did it and the fact maybe I mean, because we didn't know whether it was an accident or not. I mean, when I saw the film, I assumed it was intentional because it's such a, a bold stroke. And yet it didn't feel and I agree with you. Usually that kind of thing feels very self-conscious and very clunky and very like, oh, now I'm thinking about the camera. Somehow in the context of the way it happened and yes, probably because it was an accident, but but even not thinking it was an accident, it still seemed incredibly powerful. And, and it seemed right as opposed to seeming like, oh, that's too clever by half. Um, and, you know, yes, a lot of times on films, the accidents are the way the best things happen. Um but it worked in a way that I've yet never seen. And I think a lot of problems since this, a lot of people have stolen that idea. And I think a lot, I think a lot of people have done it in films because they saw it in, in Children of Men and it was so cool. But somehow it now feels like that. It feels like this kind of signature thing that people are trying to do. Yeah, I know that it's easy. And I, I'll probably get taken to task for this. So I'm just going to kind of put this in there. One of those like put the tweets down kind of thing. It's easy to look at Children of Men as a religious allegory. And just to know that... You know, the fishes are a symbol of Christ and yada yada. And the way that key is shot in the barn is very close to the manger and all this kind of stuff. Whatever. I find this movie more interesting to read in terms of the music, in terms of the revolution. Did the revolution fail? Did the revolution succeed? You know, just the idea of these revolutionary characters who feel like the fishes feel like somebody who read uh, you know, Das Kapital in high school and kind of got this idea of what a revolutionary is. And even to see like Chiwetel Ejiofor, who's like, you know, oh, I told them that the revolution would be in the streets. And he's just, the fishes are the most ineffectual group to me, you know, and they don't necessarily do anything other than fuck stuff up. But I kind of like that. And I like, like I said earlier, that the, the danger comes from the fishes because they are, this source of anarchy where we don't necessarily know where they're going to come into the story. When they show up again at, at the Brexel um, uh, camp, it's like, Oh wow. They're, they found us. You know, these are the people that are pursuing them more than anybody else. So, and I like that Chiwetel Ejiofor is, we were saying that nobody's black and white in this movie. Nobody is, is, as uncomplicated that, that it takes me a few minutes every single time to realize Oh my God! He set up Julian just to take power of this stupid little group. This doesn't—it doesn't compute for me. And it takes me a few minutes to even realize, yes, that was the plot point, and then to realize just how shaded he is, how 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 complex that character is. And this was one of the first times I ever saw Chiwetel Ejiofor and and recognized that I was seeing him in a movie like obviously since then you know i I saw serenity and kinky boots and all these other things but he really stood out for me in this movie is like wow i like that guy and i really want to see more of this guy in movies Mm -hmm. and his turn at the end like during that battle scene is is really great too um like you know that baby affects everybody yeah and that he won't shoot because the baby is there i'm very glad for that I didn't realize it was Charlie Hunnan as Luke. He's so covered in those dreadlocks. Yeah, this, uh, that's another thing. Every time I see, watch this movie, I re-realize it. I go, oh, he's in this movie! Because he just kind of seamlessly exists in it. And a lot of the times I find him to be kind of clunky and, and really st- stick out in what he's doing. Um, and maybe that's just my take on him in certain roles. But here, he just kind of like, he's there and he just... Phew, fades right into everybody else in the best possible way. Uh, it's not just you. <laughs> I don't want to be I don't want to be needlessly <laughs> judgmental. 
<laughs> no, no, it's not just you. It's it's the same thing for me. And you know, I was I was watching King Arthur over someone's shoulder on the airplane uh, that I was on recently, and I was just like, yeah, I'm glad I'm not watching this movie. Well, there was that poem that I sent you. That I mean, I'll bring it up, and you can you can use this or not. But it just was a coincidence, cross paths. Which was there was a poem that my father read to me when I was a kid, which scared the hell out of me, and and I my probably was, probably was age inappropriate. But the wonderful American poet Stephen Vincent Benet wrote a series of poems that he would call Nightmare, and it'd be Nightmare for Memory, Nightmare for This, and he wrote this one poem called Nightmare for Future Reference, and this was in. 1938, um, it was published in the New Yorker, and it's a poem about a father explaining to his son that after the last great war, there are no more children being born. And it's very much emotionally feels to me a little bit like Children of Men. I mean, I don't know if P.D. James knew the poem or there's just happenstance. I mean, it's not like it's a unique idea, but it's a wonderful, very powerful poem about in that case, more directly blame is being put on the military and on, on war. And it's interesting that it was before, just before World War II the poem was written. It wasn't – you know, it, it talks about I think the, the Third World War or the, or the Third Great War or something. And yet the second one hadn't quite happened yet, but it was looming. Um, so just for those who are interested in this subject matter, it, it'll take you five or ten minutes to read it. But you can find it Googling it very easily. And it's, it's just a beautiful piece of writing that contains some of that same – sadness of, of loss that, that I think the film has. I wondered how on earth you knew that because it just, it was like, oh yeah, and here's this poem. I was like, where did he come across this thing? Yeah, it was just something my dad read to me when I was probably about nine or 10 years old, which is, it's a little too creepy an idea to read to a nine or 10 year old, but my father was not always the smartest guy about what was age appropriate. He exposed me to some wonderful things. A number of them, I think probably four or five years before he should have. Going back to ZPG, I mean, it's interesting. There are definite Christian themes in that, too, when I think about it. Things like the baby's name being Jesse, which is pretty close to Jesus. The wife's name being Carol, which is like Christmas Carol. And then the Christmas tree being such a big thing. But it wasn't until last night after I had watched ZPG and Children of Men back to back when I sat there and I realized both of these movies end with a man and a woman and a baby running through tunnels, getting in a boat, and going off someplace <laughs> and to to an unknown fate. And I, that's one of the reasons, too, why I wanted to pair these two films together. Ultimately, I think we've pretty much said ZPG is not 100% successful. Probably not even close to it. Children of Men, to me, is 100% successful. But it's interesting that both of these movies have very similar types of endings though they're treated completely different and i wanted to say i wanted to ask you guys i have one idea as far as the end of zpg and even kind of the end of children of men and i'm curious what you guys think of the endings of these films and what what happens you know five minutes five weeks five years after the end of these movies have you thought about that stuff as far as ZPG goes, I thought about it for five seconds and then realized I didn't care. So <laughs> I was just like, I, is that still irradiated? Uh, I guess so. And then that was it. Um, <laughs> but I'd be very curious to hear Keith's take on that. And then as far as Children of Men go, in my brain, and I mean, I have not read the book, and I don't know how similar the actual the movie ending is to the book ending, but I assume that Clive Owen's character dies and the boat picks up Key, and whatever for whatever reason, she was just the first 
that they found to get pregnant and perhaps this is happening everywhere else too like everybody just as, as naturally as it stopped it's naturally starting up again and that was i guess just my headcanon on the whole thing i just assumed that that's how it was going to progress yeah it's it's weird I, I, in terms of zpg i i i also didn't care that much but i i, I was i was befuddled by because i thought well what can they do except die i mean essentially we've been told that this edict against babies is everywhere in the world um they've run into a place that seems like it would be full of radiation they have no way to get food they have no way to get so but yet the music and the style of it seems to be telling me i'm supposed to feel like they've made it they've escaped and i'm kind of going to what for what end i mean you know to live a week um and maybe i'm missing something but i just felt like i felt very out of sync with the movie because i felt like the movie was acting like they did it and i felt like did what um children of men i think is wonderfully ambiguous i think I think it's one of those endings that's kind of a happy ending, but with just enough question mark left that you don't feel completely comfortable, at least I didn't, and and I really liked that. I mean, you don't know if Clive Owen survives. I think the implication pretty much is he probably isn't going to. I mean, maybe they get in there and save him. You don't know if there's going to be other babies born. You don't know if this human project – I mean, everything we've seen of every group in that movie is that every group is an ultimate failure, and they're all anarchy, and and you can't trust anyone, and – so I don't feel completely confident that, oh, the the uh, the human project is going to be these wonderful people who really have their act together and know just what to do. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful. You know, I appreciate the film doesn't leave me in a bleak place, but I also appreciate that it doesn't tell me. And then everything's fine. And it leaves me uncomfortable. And, and I, I, I feel touched and, 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 and touched by Clive Bowen's sacrifice, and I'm feeling hopeful, but I'm not feeling it's okay. And I really like that because I think if the film had been like, and everything's all right now, it would have been – it would have felt like a different movie. I mean, a film that's, that, that traffics its whole the whole course of it in ambiguity, if it had been a really kind of and everything's fixed ending, it, it just would have been from a different film. I can't think of The Human Project without thinking of George Costanza's The Human Fund. His fake donation <laughs> thing, yeah. I didn't think of it until we just said it right now. I don't know I don't know why. It just really rang true in that moment. Like, oh, that's, I don't trust them anymore. But at least they showed up when they said they would show up. Which is pretty remarkable. That is so, true. And they got a boat, and the boat's name is Tomorrow. So, yeah, I'm I'm not 100% hopeful either, but at least there is that that note of hope, which I appreciate. And yeah, with ZPG, it was funny because my wife was like, "Oh well, Polaris missiles. Those those were just missiles. They weren't necessarily nuclear missiles." I was like, "But they said radiation, you know, on the island." I I think that ZPG. I want to say that they're going to the island to die, but at least they're dying on their own terms. So take that however you want. Some people would say that that's just suicide, but they at least get to breathe a little free before they die. A horrible death of radiation <laughs> poisoning. That's the second time radiation poisoning has come up on the show in like a, a month's time. We just talked about Kiss Me Deadly and just how awful radiation poisoning is on there. But yeah, that's it's their fate. And then as far as Children of Men, yeah, I like that. I When that music starts, when that John Lennon song starts for the end credits, it doesn't necessarily make me feel that good. In this movie, it's Children of Men is not a movie I can watch very often because it feels like a gut punch. And I like that it still feels like a gut punch. You know, we're we're 12 years out from when this movie came out and it still is as effective today as it was the first time I saw it. 
the world feels a little closer to the place of that world. So I actually think it, it felt closer to home seeing it for the first time in a few years for, in preparation for today. I feel like it, it just seems like an even better movie. I mean, it was always going to be a great movie, but I was like, oh, my God, this is this is actually digging. This is cutting deeper now. And I think they do that a lot because they focus more on the, the human part of the story than the sci-fi element of it. And to your point from earlier, it feels like it is such a prescient film and it's, it's scary because it is so prescient. And it's like, if we started to hear those commercials tomorrow being played either here or in England, I wouldn't necessarily be that surprised. No, I actually think that I actually think that the thing you were quoting before about, you know, it could be your gardener. It could be, it was like, yeah, that could be, I could picture like the ice, you know, the immigration thing, taking out ads like that in, in California you know, because, you know, in their eyes, we're, we're overrun by these illegal immigrants. And I, boy, I could see those ads being on, our, on my TV. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. On April 3rd, Margaret Dawson was found brutally murdered on the floor of her white Volkswagen. On the following day, Police Chief Tucker received a phone call from Franklin Wills, a man who knew every detail of the murder. He claimed to have the gift of clairvoyance. I do believe that there are many people in the world with an ability to perceive matters beyond the range of ordinary perception. Man on a Swing, a trip into the world of psychic phenomena. I just realized that there's one person who knows who the murderer is, the victim. Man on a Swing, starring Academy Award winners Cliff Robertson and Joel Gray. From Paramount Pictures, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Frank Perry's Man on a Swing, where I'll be joined by father and son team Dennis and Scout Tafoya. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Christine and Keith. Christine, what is keeping you busy in the Pacific Northwest these days? Um, well, I am still doing a podcast with um, sometimes... Uh host of this show co-host of this show emily um it's called the feminine critique you can find it on itunes and i am also still plugging away writing fiction getting some stuff submitted to some anthologies and uh you know just doing my thing up here and where can people find you best way probably is at para p-a-r-a-x-t-n-x-t-i-n-e on um twitter unless you're going to yell at me then don't bother and um online at christinemakepeace.com and keith what is keeping you busy these days sir well, in the very short term, I'm I'm just f- about to start editing uh, the season finale on Legion uh, that I, I directed that episode. So we're about to go to the editing room this week. Uh, for those of you who like the show, I think you're going to like the season because it's, you know, if, if you could get into its confusing richness last year, then it's it's more of the same. And if anything, it's only grown this year. Uh, for those who were just driven crazy by it and went, what what is that? You're probably not going to get it anymore this year than last year. It, it's It's one of those things that all speaks to your taste. So that's what I'm going to do the next uh, week or so. And then beyond that, I'm just working on my own projects and, you know, trying to get movies made, which is a slow and painful process. Well, good luck with that, sir. I can't wait for the next uh, Keith Gordon film to come out. Thank you. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. 
Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.